I'm Dove Brenner, and this is Hot Cakes from a 90s Stand. Today, we'll be continuing the conversation on the greatest 90s albums by artists not considered 90s artists. Anyways, let's get back into that totally not figurative time machine to January 13th, 1968, a day where in Folsom, California, a well-known country singer who spent the better part of the decade suffering from addiction, legal troubles, a sharp decline in commercial success, and the deterioration of his marriage, recorded a live performance in the most unlikely of places that would not only help clean up his image and lead to a new role for the singer in the public arena, but it would also revitalize his career. That singer, along with his band, Tennessee Three, performed two shows for the inmates at Folsom State Prison. He and his band had performed at various prisons over the years, but this show was different. For the first time, the singer's record label, Columbia Records, agreed to support the taping of the live performance, which they would release as an album. In addition, Bob Johnston, who famously produced Bob Dylan's 1965 record, Highway 61 Revisited, agreed to produce the performance at Folsom Prison. Although enthusiasm existed, doubt did as well, especially from the drummer of Tennessee Three, Fluke Holland, who, when looking back on the show, said, quote, I told everyone it won't sell enough to pay for the expense of going out with the recording equipment. Holland will be the first to admit he was dead wrong, as the album was a resounding success, peaking at number one on the Billboard Country Albums charts. And the opening track on the record, Folsom Prison Blues, hit the top 40 on the pop charts, a position which his previous 14 singles failed to achieve. I'm sure as soon as I mentioned Folsom, California, you knew exactly which singer I was referring to. Johnny Cash became a household name, again, following the success of At Folsom Prison. The public received the album so well that following year, Columbia Records released another prison performance from Cash. This one taped at San Quentin State Prison, located just north of San Francisco. Not only did the record top the country charts, like its predecessors, it topped the Billboard Hot 200 albums chart as well. Furthermore, his performance of the cover of Shel Silverstein's A Boy Named Sue reached number two on the Billboard Hot 100 and would become the biggest pop hit of Cash's career. These records established Cash as an advocate for prison reform. On July 26, 1972, he testified on the subject matter in front of a U.S. Senate subcommittee arguing for the rehabilitation of criminals rather than incarceration as well as the prohibition of minors from entering prison. Later that day, he met with President Richard Nixon to continue the conversation on the matter. All right, now let's get back into our time machine and get to October of 1992. Producer Rick Rubin was in attendance at the 30th anniversary concert of Bob Dylan's career. Johnny Cash performed at the event. While the first half of the 70s was kind to Cash, and he found success in the mid-80s as a member of the country supergroup The Highwaymen, the late 70s and 80s provided for the second decline of the singer-songwriter's solo career, highlighted by Columbia Records' 1986 decision to drop him. While watching him perform at the Dylan Anniversary Concert, Rubin felt that the aging star still had potential within the industry. Rubin approached Cash to work on a project, project to which initially brought Cash reluctance. His qualms eased when Rubin told him, quote, I would like you to do whatever feels right for you. On April 26, 1994, Cash released his 81st album, American Recordings, 
named after Rubin's record label. The Minimalist record contrasted Cash's previous albums of the 80s and early 90s, as American recordings featured only Cash's voice and the soft strumming of his acoustic guitar, for which he apparently didn't even use a guitar pick. Rubin recorded Cash for the majority of the album at the Country Music Legends home in Hendersonville, Tennessee, as well as at Rubin's home in Los Angeles. In December of 1993, Cash played an ultra-exclusive concert at Johnny Depp's notorious venue, The Viper Room. Two songs from that set ended up on American recordings. While the record included four original Cash songs, the majority of the tunes were covers, many of which originally written and performed by songwriting legends such as Tom Waits, Leonard Cohen, and Chris Christopherson. I'll start off the highlights with a song that isn't quite an original, nor quite a, a cover. The first track off the album, Delia's Gone, is a traditional murder ballad that has been performed by household names such as Bob Dylan, Pete Seeger, Waylon Jennings, and Harry Belafonte. Cash himself even recorded a full band version of the song on his 1962 The Sound of Johnny Cash. In the haunting folk tune, which opens the record, Cash sings in his classic baritone voice about the murder of Delia Green, a teenage girl murdered on Christmas Eve 1990 in Savannah, Georgia, by a teenage boy, Moses Houston, who apparently had a romantic relationship with Green. He later received a conviction for the murder and spent over a decade in prison before Georgia Governor John Slayton granted Houston parole in 1913. In Cash's version, he tells the story from the perspective of Houston. The song includes six verses, each concluding with the famous refrain, quote, Delia's gone, one more round, Delia's gone. Cash famously performed Delia's Gone on The Late Show with David Letterman, in which he received a resounding ovation that lasted at least 30 seconds. I say at least, at least, because Letterman went to commercial break while the crowd was still applauding. Unfortunately, the drug addiction that Cash kicked in the late 60s resurfaced again at the end of the 1970s, when he began drinking heavily, as well as using barbiturates and amphetamines, historically his substances of choice. He was in and out of rehab throughout the 80s, before finally getting clean and sober for good in 1992. I mention this because on American Recording's third track, The Beast in Me, in which he covers an inherently sad song written by Nick Lowe, you can hear the pain in Johnny Cash's voice. Lowe, an English singer-songwriter who actually was Cash's son-in-law at one point, made a career of writing dark songs that his power-poppy instrumentals often masked. However, in Cash's cover, it remains somber in all forms. The way he strums the guitar, the tempo, the lyrics, and of course the way his voice drags and breaks throughout all contribute to the song's morose sentiment. I can't help but think that Cash used the pain experienced throughout his struggles with substances in delivering this cover. Following The Beast in Me, Ruben and Cash placed the first original song on the album, Drive On, next. The song, a catchy and upbeat country ditty in which Cash tells the story of a soldier recently returned from Vietnam who still harbors the traumatic memories of war. The title and recurring lyric of Drive On refers to the phrase used in the 1982 Vietnam novel titled The 13th Valley 
in which whenever one of the characters encounter, encounters a harrowing scene, such as the death of his comrades, that character tells himself, quote, just say fuck it and drive on. Although much of the tune is sobering, mentioning PTSD and the death of the narrator's friend Tex, Drive On ends on a positive note, with the narrator quoting his other friend, nicknamed Whiskey Sam, who told the narrator, quote, you're a walking, talking miracle from Vietnam, essentially reminding him, despite all the negative consequences of his time fighting overseas, he survived a grueling war and now can spend time with his wife and kids, people in which Cash mentions in each chorus. The other original on the album, for me that shines as a highlight, American Recordings' penultimate song, Like a Soldier, continues the militaristic imagery he utilizes on Drive On, but this time the references to war serve as a metaphor. In Like a Soldier, Cash appears to recount his struggles with addiction, but graciously thanks the outcome in those battles as they led him to the love of his life, June Carter, who he married in 1968. Like many country singers from his era, many of Cash's hits are covers, but if you ever doubt his abilities as a songwriter, look over the lyrics to Like a Soldier. They're beautiful. Each verse shares a unique perspective in approaching his demons, so I'll share a couple of my favorites. The first verse reads, quote, But the wild road I was rambling was always out there calling, and you said a hundred times I should have died. Then you reached down and touched me and lifted me up with you, so I believe it was a road I was meant to ride. I know, right? The last verse gives the feels even more than my humble opinion. The lyrics to that verse are, quote, But in my dreams parade of lovers, from the other times and places, there's not one that matters now, no matter who. I'm just thankful for the journey and that I've survived the battles, and that my spoils of victory is you. You know, someone asked me fairly recently who my heroes are, and I included Johnny Cash in my response. After reviewing the lyrics to those two songs he wrote, I feel very confident in my answer. Anyways, I now want to finish my spiel touching on the two songs that Cash performed on that December evening in 1993 featured on American Recordings, as they certainly symbolize the respect that Cash garnered throughout his career from his peers as well as the common man. For the final song on the record, Cash covered... The Man Who Couldn't Cry, originally written and performed by Loudon Wainwright III. Cash ventures into dark comedy for this track, which tells the tragic comedy of a man who, despite many severe transgressions committed against him, as the title suggests, could not cry. Some of those events include losing his arm in combat, his dog getting run over by a car, his wife leaving him, his boss firing him, him getting sentenced to jail, and then getting beaten by the inmates. Ultimately due to his inability to shed a tear, theologians and scientists dismissed him as insane. Then finally, after being sent to an insane asylum, the man begins crying and can't stop. So following 40 days of weeping, the sobbing leads to his dehydration and death. In heaven, he is avenged, as all his wrongdoers face retribution for their transgressions. For example, his wife died of, quote, stretch marks. His ex-employer went broke, and the jailhouse that housed him burned down. Best of all, though, he gets reunited with his dog. The song is quite silly, but I'm sure some deep meanings, meaning exists there. Regardless, the sad story with the somewhat happy ending told hilarious through Cash's baritone voice and acoustic guitar is as charming as it is heartwarming. Finally, 
Cash's cover of Tennessee Stud, which prolific folk songwriter Jimmy Driftwood wrote and released in 1959, currently has over 15 million streams on Spotify, more than three times as many plays as the second most streamed on the record. Also performed in December of 93 at the Viper Room, Tennessee Stud, which had already been covered by legendary artists such as Doc Watson, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and Chet Atkins, tells the story about a 19th century man who had a conflict with his significant other's outlaw brother and father, forcing him to flee on a horse named Tennessee Stud. The protagonist rides the horse all the way to Mexico. The plot gets a little confusing at this point, but essentially the Tennessee Stud races uh, another horse, wins, and the protagonist obtains a ton of riches. The gambler who bet against him tries to steal the Tennessee Stud, forcing the protagonist to kill the gambler. The horse and the protagonist finally return to his significant other's home in Tennessee. The protagonist successfully acts vengefully against his significant other's outlaw brother and father. The song ends with a romantic reunion between the man and his lady. The Tennessee stud is awarded for his contribution in the man's journey and mates with the significant other's mare. A silly ending for a silly story, but with Cash's softly strummed acoustic guitar and his baritone voice testing the lower limits of the human voice, the audience ate it up, laughing mightily when the Tennessee stud meets the Tennessee mare. Like all the other albums mentioned so far in this two-part episode, critics love Johnny Cash's work with Rick Rubin. The album received perfect scores from Rolling Stone, the Chicago Tribune, and the Los Angeles Times. Rolling Stone called the album, quote, tough as leather, and commended the, quote, yin and yang of his restless heart and Christian soul. The LA Times characterized the album as, quote, 13 songs that peer into the dark corners of American soul of the American soul and deem the record as quote, a milestone for this, for the legendary singer commercially American recordings peaked at number 23 on the country charts and 110 on the billboard hot 200. While those numbers don't sound sexy cash hadn't enjoyed that much solo success on the country charts since his 1981 album, the Baron and hadn't had a position on the pop charts that high since his 1971 record man in black. Cash released three more studio albums with Rick Rubin before his death in 2003. American 4, The Man Comes Around, released months before his death, featured Cash's cover of the 1994 hit Nine Inch Nails single Hurt, a cover which is considered by many as one of the greatest covers in modern music history, and the accompanying music video is considered the greatest music video by many. I, Dove Brenner of Hot Cakes from a 90s stand, am one of the many who have those opinions. So while the album didn't reach the level of success that Cash achieved in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, American Recordings reignited his career and ushered in a new chapter of vintage Johnny Cash tunes that ultimately led to that final masterpiece. Cash would have been remembered as an icon with or without his work with Rick Rubin, but those American Recordings albums that his 1994 effort catalyzed introduced him to a new generation, solidifying him as a bona fide transcendent musical figure a status he'll carry for generations to come. Our next date to travel to on our time machine will be January 31st, 2007. Probably the greatest day of my life, to be honest. 
for the first time in my 13-year-old life, along with my family and middle school best friend Max. I saw my favorite band of all time perform at the newly named Amway Center in Orlando, Florida. Gnarls Barkley served as a decent opener, but the 20,000-plus crowd gathered to watch the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the biggest band at the time, perform. They performed for an hour and 45 minutes. Every second increasingly became the greatest moment of my life. Emotionally for my friend Max and I, the Chili Peppers guitarist John Frusciante appeared to have just shaved his head. The first time he publicly looked like that since the blood sugar sex magic era of their terrific discography. An extra special layer to that show dealt with their iconic single from Stadium Arcadium, Snow, Hey Oh. As soon as I heard that song for the first time, it transformed into one of my favorite all-time songs. Four days before the Chili Peppers took the stage in Orlando, Snow went to number one on the rock charts, pushing my excitement to an all-time high. Snow took the number one spot from another iconic band. Prior to Snow, the number one spot belonged to the fiery gem Animali by Incubus, the five-piece alt-rock slash new metal group from the San Fernando Valley that the Chili Peppers had actually influenced. Incubus, along with Linkin Park, represent one of the few new metal bands that do not exist as the butt of a joke. The band's catalog explores many sounds within the alternative rock spectrum. During the aughts, they established themselves as a major name within the industry for both pop and rock audiences. In that decade, five of their singles charted on the Billboard Hot 100, and a staggering 11 of their singles peaked at the top five on the rock charts. Also during the aughts, Incubus released five albums that charted within the top five spots in the Billboard Hot 200. So, like System of a Down, a band we discussed on the first part of this episode, Incubus is unequivocally, beyond a doubt, and unquestionably an early 2000s band. However, it was their third studio album, Make Yourself, released in late 1999 that catapulted them to that designation of iconic 2000s band. Although the boys of Incubus were young as hell, they had already been kicking it for over half a decade. They had steadily been gaining some traction, in particular grabbing a spot on the OzFest tour, playing alongside bands such as our friend System of a Down, as well as Tool, and Megadeth. The band began recording Make Yourself in early 1999 with producer Jim Dirt, who produced their 1995 and 1997 predecessors, Fungus Among Us and Science, respectively. In the infancy of the recording process, disenchanted with the results, the band had the radical idea to dismiss Dirt in favor of, well, themselves. While four to five members of the band hadn't exceeded 23 years of age, and no member of Incubus received a production credit on their first two studio albums, their A&R person, Paul Pontius, believed in their vision and permitted the move. That being said, the band ultimately recruited former audio engineer-slash-producer Scott Litt that had worked previously with R.E.M. and Nirvana to assist them. On October 26, 1999, vocalist Brandon Boyd, guitarist Mike Einziger, bassist Dirk Lance, drummer Jose Pasillas, and turntablist DJ Kilmore released the 48 minutes of music that would change their careers. For the tour to promote science, the young men traveled extensively to places in the UK and Europe that they had never been before, which Mike Einziger referred to as the biggest influence on the writing for Make Yourself. Brandon Boyd, tasked with writing the lyrics, noted that he felt that the hard rock scene they found themselves at the time 
reflected a masculine energy that the band wanted to distance themselves from. Consequently, he wanted to show his vulnerable and emotional side, especially since he had recently discovered his longtime girlfriend was cheating on him. Thus, the emotions he conveyed on the record included anger, fear, heartbreak, and a sense of hope with regards to finding new love. In terms of music, the album definitely sounds like a bit of a departure from the edgier funk metal found on previous records. While the album has some pretty explosive as well as experimental tunes, there's a more polished demeanor that dominates the album overall. While no filler tunes comprise the consistent third album for the band, six tunes stand out as the album's highlights. Make yourselves three singles as well as three other tracks scattered throughout the record. The album's opener, Privilege, certainly finds itself as a highlight. The funk rock slash new metal anthem slaps and sets the tone for what makes the album special. The catchiness of the melody, the power of the vocals, the tightness of the rhythm section, the explosiveness of the chorus, and the almost scientifically precise placement of the turntables. Lyrically, Boyd discusses the blessing and curse associated with the privilege of human free will. From the first chorus onward, a man standing in front of Boyd online somewhere serves as the main character. The lyricist notices the man going through the motions and muses what could be of the man if he escaped from the daily grind. Boyd then shows self-awareness through wondering if he himself could look into his heart and, quote, find a back door. The lyricist utilizes the word back door five times throughout the song, which symbolizes an escape and an opening to the positive opportunities stemming from free will. Overall, banger of an opening song. The fourth song on the album, The Warmth, bridges the, the band's 90s sound to that of their early 21st centuries. Forgive me if, as I go off on a bit of a tangent, but I feel like producing new metal music is kind of like baking. When done correctly and precisely, dotting the I's and crossing the T's, you can enjoy some delicious treats, but the smallest error can ruin your creation. While many new metal acts such as Limb Bizkit, P.O.D., and Kid Rock often get the short end of the stick, from critics and within legacy discussions of late 90s and early 2000s rock. When done correctly, new metal is a beautiful hybrid of genres exploring the limits of sound and heaviness within a mainstream accessibility context. Bands like Linkin Park, Slipknot, and Korn all put out tremendous generation-defining new metal songs throughout their career. Anyways, back to Incubus. While Incubus tends to limbo under the more aggressive side of new metal, within various songs of theirs, enough criteria is met to garner that new metal status. The Warmth probably ranks as the best example of that on the album. Jose Pasillas' funk beat along with Mike Einzinger's ethereal riff and DJ Kilmore's subtle electronic elements serve as a ladder, culminating with a heavy yet somewhat psychedelic chorus. In my humble opinion, the lyrics adhere to Boyd's desire to get more vulnerable as it appears he provides himself with words of encouragement so that the transgressions of his ex-girlfriend don't prevent him from experiencing the beautiful things life has to offer, which he refers to as the warmth. The chorus serves as the lyrical centerpiece for the song, reading, quote, So don't let the world bring you down. Not everyone here is that fucked up and cold. Remember why you came and while you're alive. Experience the warmth before you grow. The last highlight I'll share before discussing three songs that you know if you spent any time between 2000 and 2006 listening to rock radio turns out to be a nearly four-minute instrumental tune. Battlestar Skralachtika, did I say that right? Which sounds like you might have found it on a Beastie Boys record, 
features Incubus at their funkiest and pays homage to hip-hop DJs from the golden era of hip-hop. Pasilla's funk rock beat would make Chad Smith not an approval. The guitar uses a liberal but adequate amount of wah-wah pedal. The bass carries the compositional weight overall in true funk fashion, and of course the icing on the cake, as the title would suggest, rests on DJ Kilmore's turntable scratching, which makes you want to remove yourself from your sad boy vibes that the rest of the album might have given you and instead get on the dance floor. My friend Max that I mentioned earlier loves Incubus. I remember staying over his house one night in 8th grade, circa 2006, listening to O-Rock 105.9, which tragically got taken over by a classic rock adjacent station in late 2007. An acoustic version of the song called Pardon Me came on the radio. I remember Max saying to me, quote, Dove, you gotta pay attention to the song. It's awesome. The paradox of the vulnerability and tenderness felt in a somewhat meaty chorus impressed me. Max went on to tell me to check out the original version of the song, which finds itself as the 12th and penultimate tune on Make Yourself. The explosive new metal classic has the distinct privilege as the only single from the album released in the 90s. The dynamics of the song are breathtaking, with a significantly contrasted yet linear dichotomy between verse and chorus. Paseus and Void steal the show in this tune, with Paseus switching between funk in the verses and alternative metal during the choruses with ease. With regards to Boyd's vocals, the word strong comes to mind. He belts the chorus with chops, approximating those possessed by rock legends such as Bruce Dickinson, Robert Plant, and Lane Staley. Boyd proves himself as one of the great rock songwriters of his era, with a clarity in his voice and originality in his lyrics, as he reflects in real time of the traumatic events that happened concurrently while writing the album. Boyd again uses specific images symbolically to represent moving past the trauma. In this case, the images of combustion and flames dominate the song. From his point of view, while he felt his personal life deteriorating, his determination to, quote, rise above the flames, maintains the presence of hope within dark times, a theme found in all songs I've discussed so far, which keeps in line with Boyd's songwriting goals for the album. The second single on Make Yourself, titled Stellar, contains the same energy as Pardon Me. Stellar follows the verse-chorus relationship of the big grunge bands of the early 90s with a soft verse and loud chorus. Beyond that, musically, not too much to talk about. Just a really catchy and solid uh, new metal tune. Stellar definitely results as one of the more loose songs on the record in terms of cohesiveness, but I don't mean that negatively in the slightest. In terms of lyrics, Boyd pens a sort of sci-fi love song with the song's title utilizing both of its dictionary definitions. The imagery in the verses relate the song's title with its scientific meaning of relating to stars with lines such as, quote, meet me in outer space, we could spend the night, watch the earth come up. However, in the chorus, Boyd refers to his romantic interest using the non-academic meaning of the word, essentially describing her as exceptionally good with the lines, quote, how do you do it? make me feel like I do. How do you do it? It's better than I ever knew. At the end of the second verse, however, Boyd brings together the sci-fi and romance when alluding to his love interest, joining him in outer space, saying, quote, I need you to see this place. It might be the only way that I can show you how it feels to be inside of you. I save for last the song that even if you've never heard of Incubus before, you'll know it if you listen to pop radio at all between the years 2001 and 2003. 
On November 14, 2000, the band released their third single. Although they already garnered chart success with the previously mentioned single, their third changed everything. Drive, the acoustic-driven eighth track on Make Yourself, became a generation-defining early 21st century rock song. As a sucker for both open chords and jazz chords, the riff throughout the song combines both to make for a highly catchy guitar part. Beyond the guitar riff and DJ Kilmore's imprint that he puts on the record with scratches and orchestral inserts, the song instrumentally is rather simple, perhaps the most simple on the album. The lack of instrumental indulgence, if you will, allows for Boyd's voice and lyrics to shine. Boyd discusses leaving behind flaws in his thinking, commenting about the song, quote, The lyric is basically about fear, about being driven all your life by it and making decisions from fear. It's about imagining what life would be like if you didn't live that way. A deeper look at the lyrics proves Boyd's cleverness. Never reluctant to use metaphors, he uses the steering wheel of a car to represent human consciousness. He really captures the sometimes human gravitation to acting out of fear with the opening line, quote, It's driven me before, and it seems to have a vague, haunting mass appeal. In the uplifting chorus, Boyd shares his inspirational new motto about abandoning toxic fear with, quote, Whatever tomorrow brings, I'll be there with open arms and open eyes. Surprise, surprise, critics and the mainstream audience seem to enjoy Make Yourself. The album received four out of five star reviews from All Music, Slant Magazine, and the Rolling Stone Album Guide. Steve Huey of All Music praised the album's, quote, hybrid of familiar late 90s alt metal, i.e. roaring guitars, white noise, sonic textures, and an undercurrent of electronics, and chili pepper funk rock. Saul Sinkemani of Slant Magazine praised Incubus's genre as well, asserting, quote, the band manages to successfully blur the perceptions between metal and alt-rock. The larger pop audience enjoyed the album as well, leading to its commercial success. To date, the album has sold nearly 3 million copies, going twice platinum in the United States. Additionally, the album peaked at number 47 on the Billboard Hot 200. All three singles from the record became hits and maintained status as some of the band's most enduring songs. On the rock charts, Pardon Me peaked at number 3, Stellar peaked at number 2, and Drive peaked at number 1. Speaking of Drive, on the Billboard Hot 100, it peaked at number 9, making it their only top 40 pop hit of their career. While Incubus doesn't seem like a band with the status of 90s-2000s rock titans like the Foo Fighters, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and The Offspring, but their popularity has endured as they currently have over 7 million monthly listeners on Spotify. For our next venture on our time machine, we'll travel to August 16, 1969. A young virtuous San Francisco-based guitarist, originally from Mexico, arrived with a backing band in Bethel, New York to perform at the legendary Woodstock Festival. At around noon, his friend, Jerry Garcia, whose band, The Grateful Dead, was slated to perform in the late evening, told the young guitar player that he wouldn't perform until around 2 in the morning. Garcia then offered his friend some mescaline. The young guitar player accepted as he had prior positive experiences with psychedelics and figured that by the time his band would perform, he would be at a state within the trip conducive to playing music. However, two hours later, just as the young guitarist was peeking on the drug, he was informed that his band had to take the stage at that moment. That performance changed the 22-year-old guitarist's life. 
while the hallucinating made him feel as if he were wrestling with a guitar, likening it to a surfer wrestling with a surfboard. The performance received rave reviews and launched the young guitarist and his band to commercial stardom as well as critical stardom. From 1969 to 1981, the guitarist, Carlos Santana, and his band, simply called Santana, released two albums that peaked at number one on the Billboard Hot 200 and nine singles that peaked in the top 40 on the Billboard Hot 100. Spending his childhood in Mexico and his teenage years in California, Santana incorporated the musical and cultural influences of his various surroundings in his career, blending Latin, blues, jazz, and Afro-Cuban percussion to create a unique sound that led to Santana's status as a bona fide guitar god. Let's get back in the time machine and move forward to June 15, 1999, when Santana released his 18th studio album, Supernatural, and defied gravity within the music industry. The genesis of the record included Santana approaching famous record mogul Clive Davis about producing a record to appeal to a pop audience. Davis had history with Santana as he had signed him in 1968. While Davis agreeing to take on the project seemed to counter Davis's interest since the veteran guitarist hadn't produced a big hit in over a decade and a half, Davis dev devised a plan to ensure pop success. He wanted Santana to bring the energy of the guitarist's legendary live performances through seven songs that Santana would write in the style of his, uni his unique sound, and Davis would come to the table with seven songs written by his team that included pop sensations such as Lauryn Hill, Dave Matthews, Everlast, Eagle Eye Cherry, and of course, Rob Thomas. That cast of features makes Supernatural a perfect item for a time capsule from 1999. But I digress. Supernatural combines the bluesy Latin rock synonymous with Santana, along with pop, hip-hop, soft rock, and R&B. While the commercial flavor that Davis added removes some originality from the record, plenty of bangers exist on Supernatural. Obviously, the far superior songs from the album came from what Santana brought to the table, but in all fairness, the masses probably wouldn't have been exposed to those tunes without the songs that Clive Davis concocted. The first of the two songs that resulted from Davis's recruitments that I appreciate, Maria Maria, blends hip-hop and R&B, but the nucleus of the song centers on Santana's lead guitar. In the verses, Santana noodles on a flamenco-style guitar before playing one of the most famous electric guitar licks in popular music history, which emulated a sample from the 1993 Wu-Tang Clan song, Wu-Tang Clan Ain't Nothing to Fuck With. Wyclef Jean and Jerry Duplessis produced Maria Maria. Like Santana, both Jean and Duplessis emigrated from Latin America during their youth. Both from Haiti, they found success in the mid-90s with the legendary hip-hop group the, the Fugees. Jean as a rapper within the group, and Duplessis as one of the producers of their landmark 1996 album, The Score. Jean also emceed on Maria Maria. The vocalists on the song featured the product GMB, an R&B duo consisting of Dave McRae and Marvin Moore Hugh. The lyrics are rather gimmicky, but focus on the tragic figure, the downtrodden protagonist, Maria. Santana, in a rare occurrence, inserted vocals in the tune, repeating the line in Spanish, quote, Ahora vengo, mama chola, which translates to, now I come, mama chola. Apparently, mama chola refers to chola wenge, a deity within the ancient African diaspora religion, palo mayombe. Mama chola reigns over the river, fresh waters and springs, and, and is characterized with a strong and seductive feminine, feminine energy. So presumably, this reference suggests the power and beauty of Maria despite her tough circumstances. Supernatural's opener, Yaleo, 
exists as a song that Santana developed. It captures the essence of Santana's sound with its accessible blend of Latin rock, blues, and jazz. In a, per- in a perfect example of his multiculturalism, this cover of the 1991 song by Afro-French group Mother Says features lyrics in both Spanish as well as Swahili. I don't speak Swahili, but as a high school Spanish teacher, I can share that the lyrics tell of an innocent Parisian love story. Some of the lyrics translate to, quote, I saw her singing in Paris. She wanted to be together with me. I was surprised when she said, Yaleo. As well as, quote, she is mine. She gives me love. I am complete. I am happy. Now we have kids that say Yaleo. That word, Yaleo, isn't actually a word in either language. It combines Ya in Spanish and Leo in Swahili. Ya has a bunch of translations, but the most common are right now or already. Leo in Swahili means today. So my humble guess as to the meaning of this Spanhili word could be something like seize the day. The song features an extended jam. The first part features a jazzy keyboard solo from Santana's longtime keyboardist, Chester D. Thompson, which Santana follows with his own Cobra-like jazzy solo. About a minute into the jam, Santana hits some really high notes on the guitar, which transitions the instrumental section into a gnarly and explosive jam. Every instrument, including the horns, drums, and hand percussion, get a little crazy before shifting back into the song's refrain, which fades out along with, of course, some sexy guitar licks from Carlos himself. The eighth song on Supernatural, Migra, always stood out to me, not only on behalf of the catchiness of the chorus and Santana's abrasive lead guitar, but also because the song appears as a rare moment for Santana in which he gets political. The song begins and ends with the lines, quote, Migra, migra, pinche migra, Déjame en paz. La migra is a colloquial term in some Spanish vernaculars referring to U.S. Border Patrol. So in this tune, Santana protests the U.S. Border Patrol's treatment of undocumented immigrants. As that line I just read translates to Border Patrol, Border Patrol, fucking Border Patrol, leave me alone. Santana seems eager to avoid the track falling on deaf ears within the country of his residence as he employs English during one of the song's bridges. Additionally, the entire song features gang vocals, presumably to urge the necessity of working together to defeat immigration injustices. While usually a soulful guitarist, Santana plays indulgently throughout the entirety of the song, and especially during the guitar solo, in which, frankly, the man shreds at lightning speed. Between the gang vocals, thumping drum groove, in-your-face lyrics, and distorted tone of Santana's guitar, Migra results as the heaviest song on the album. The ninth song on the record, to date, finds itself as one of the popular rock songs written exclusively in Spanish. Corazón Espinado features the legendary Mexican rock band Maná. With over 40 million records sold worldwide, Maná is the most successful Latin American band of all time. So naturally on paper, it seemed like a collaboration between Carlos Santana and Maná would prove to be a pure gem. That premonition resulted accurately as the Latin pop rock single became an international hit and enduring fan favorite. The collaboration certainly drifts toward the Latin pop side of Supernatural, with the only elements of rock coming from Santana's vintage lead guitar. With the Latin piano progression, vividness of the Afro-Cuban percussion, and the lyrics in Spanish, the song gravitates towards a Latin identity reminiscent of Oye Como Va, arguably his signature song released in 1970. Written by the frontman of Maná, Ferro Olvera, The song's title, Corazón Espinado, translates roughly to Wounded Heart. 
The song, the song shares the perspective of a man recently dumped by his significant other, still in the process of grieving. As much as I love Mana and their work on the song, the lyrics are not anything to write home about. Although anyone who has experienced the receiving end of a breakup can relate to the bridge, quote, how painful is forgetting, how the heart hurts, how it hurts being alive without you at my side. Also, shout out to Olvera, who encourages Santana before his solo yelling, quote, Echele mi Carlitos, which in Mexican Spanish translates to, quote, put your back into it, my Carlos. In Spanish, adding the itos to the end of someone's name is a suffix of endearment. The other song that Clive Davis brought to the table that stood the test of time turned out to be the, mo the second most successful single in the history of the Billboard Hot 100. For this song, Pete Gunbarg, an A&R rep who Clive Davis had recruited to help fulfill his vision introduced two young mu musicians, Etal Shore and Rob Thomas. Shore had already co-written a top 40 hit in R&B singer Maxwell's 1996 neo-soul song titled Ascension, Don't Ever Wonder. Rob Thomas, the frontman of the pop rock band Matchbox 20, had been writing the success of his band's multi-platinum debut studio album released in 1996. Initially, Shore showed Gonbarg a song he had written titled Room 17, a salsa tune about ex-lovers reuniting and in turn committing adultery. Gonbarg didn't think the nefarious nature of the song aligned with Santana's ethos, so Shore agreed to change it with the help of Thomas, who added a chorus, changed the key, and helped change up some of the lyrics. Thomas's lyrical contributions reflected his love and desire for his then-fiancé, Marisol, who in the song he refers to as his, quote, Spanish Harlem Mona Lisa. The name of this song, of course, is Smooth. Initially, Santana didn't like Smooth, but Davis and Gonbarg put their heads together to convince the then middle-aged guitar god to record the song. Santana acquiesced under, under the condition that Thomas sing the song. Reflecting on the development of the song, and especially working with Thomas, Santana commented, quote, I believed him a little bit, but I didn't believe him completely. Something happens when brother Rob Thomas sings at the same time with the Santana band, and myself in the same room. All of a sudden, two and two becomes seven instead of two and two becomes four. Smooth, which became the first single from Supernatural, almost sounds like an English language equivalent of Corazon Espinado. It possesses the same Latin pop flavor, and even the guitar solo sounds extremely similar to the one Santana plays in Corazon Espinado. Rob Thomas's contribution to the song may receive ridicule in 2023, but those same critics probably would agree that Thomas's silly lyrics and vocal inflections are infectiously entertaining. The manner in which he sings appears as an attempt at seductiveness and his lyrics at an attempt at coolness. At the moment, he achieved that goal, but in hindsight, maybe not so much. Some of the sillier lyrics, some of the sillier lyrics in the song include, quote, "You're my reason for reason," as well as, quote, and it's just like the ocean under the moon. It's the same as the emotion that I get from you. And who can forget, quote, give me your heart, make it real, or else forget about it. Side note, Rob Thomas, you're beautiful. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Supernatural became an absolute mega hit and resurrected Santana's career in the process. The album sold over 25 million copies worldwide and spent 11 weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 200. Maria Maria spent 10 weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100, and Smooth spent 12 weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100. 
while Corazon Espinaro sang entirely in Spanish, didn't achieve achieve the pop success in the in the U.S. of the two previously mentioned songs. It did hit the top 40 in Spain, Switzerland, and Italy. Additionally, it peaked at number 22 on the U.S. Latin pop airplay chart. Critically, well, who cares about what critics thought because Supernatural famously obliterated its competition at the 2000 Grammy Awards. Winning nine awards, breaking the previous record held by Michael Jackson's 1982 cultural phenomenon Thriller. Some of the prestigious awards Santana received that night include Song of the Year, Record of the Year, Album of the Year, and Best Rock Album. So while much of the album hasn't stood the test of time, like Johnny Cash's American Recordings, Supernatural introduced a musical icon and important figure in North American history to a new generation. For better or for worse, the story of the guitar god Carlos Santana cannot be told without a heavy portion focusing on his work at the turn of the 20th century. And y'all know... When that drum intro to Smooth comes on at a public event, instantaneously getting up to dance is inevitable. So those are the six greatest 90s albums by artists not considered 90s artists. I guess it's time for me to crown the winner as to which 90s album by an artist not considered a 90s artist is in fact the greatest 90s album by an artist not considered a 90s artist. While there could be an argument made for each of these fantastic records, I have to go with User Illusion 1 and 2. The amount of depth talent, creativity, and mind-exploding moments does it for me. Plus, Slash is a cool guy. All right, so we're back with Ryan Gilman, uh, the man, the myth, the legend. Um, and so, that's uh, me. <laughs> um, and so, my first question for you is: We're, we're going to start off talking about Mr. Johnny Cash. Um, mm-hmm. So, my question, um, my first question is: Do you like country music? Because I don't think we've ever actually really talked about that before. Yeah. So, um, if we're talking about like country music. I I like it. I just never gotten into it per se. I know all the new guys who are country, quote unquote country, but not. I never taken like a deep dive into like a lot of old country and listened to it thoroughly. Yeah, well, that's I think for me, and and I think I might have mentioned this on previous episodes, but um, you know, I don't listen to a ton of country in terms of like the amount of artists. Like I don't miss like there's not like fifteen twenty country artists I listen to. It's much smaller, but mm-hmm. I listen to those artists quite a bit. And a lot of those are like you said, you know, the the older country singers are like more of the the newer like alternative country singers, right? Um, because I do think that the, you know the you know the pop country scene is is, is probably not my vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, had you listened much to Johnny Cash before? Um, not really a whole lot, man. I, I I think we did a project my senior year of high school on Ring of Fire, and looked into like the poeticness of that. Um, but that was really the only time that I really like sat there listening to Johnny Cash and like thought about it, I guess you could say for sure. And, um, you know, I think that like, at least for millennials, Gen Z, I think the song that we associate most with him, um, is his cover of hurt, Mm -hmm. um, originally by nine inch nails. Um, had you heard that before, you know, this preparation for this interview? Yeah. Yeah. I had heard that actually before. Um, I knew we were doing this, um, the pile of dirt 
lyric always <laughs> kind of got me a little. I'm like, that's a cool lyric. Um, and I correct me if I'm wrong. That song's about addiction, right? So that's a and that's just, this this could go down a rabbit hole. But <laughs> so so Trent Reznor wrote it um, uh, about addiction, okay. right? Um, and about self harm and, and whatnot. And I think that's what makes it a special co- cover is that when you hear Johnny Cash's version, like mm-hmm. you know, there are certain lines that um, if anyone else had like you know sung it, you would associate it with addiction. But when Johnny Cash sings it at that stage in his life, it's like okay, he's writing about him being at the end of his life, right? Um, and that's what I think makes the cover you know, amazing. Yeah. And I actually sat down and listened to it, um, again, recently, obviously before this. And I agree with you completely. I actually didn't really put that in my, put that two and two together in my head until you just said that. But, oh my gosh, it makes so much more sense now. Why that's so more meaningful. Have you seen the music video? I have not. Okay. So before you leave, we are going to watch that music video and uh, I've never seen you cry and I'm looking forward to seeing it for the first time. It's, it's a lot. It's beautiful. Well, um, at least cry while being sad. I think you should cry <laughs> while laughing. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, so, you know, for me, like, you know, Johnny Cash is, is a hero of mine, and I talk about a little bit in the monologue. Mm-hmm. You know, he's one of my all-time favorite artists, um, and I think he's a, he's an American icon, um, you know, and that's not a hot take uh, in, oh, in any sure. sense. But yeah. where do you think he ranks among America's all-time great artists? Musical artists, obviously. Ooh. Hard question. Um, I mean, I think part of what also makes American icons and uh, sorry, you said American artists. I guess they they become icons because they're such good artists. And so Johnny Cash did obviously a little bit more than just music too. He, I think he had like a TV show. Yeah, yeah, he had a variety show, and he, I think he was an actor as well. Exactly. So it's like I think at that point when you're doing that stuff because of how good your music is, yeah, I'm not. Even though I'm not exactly super into him or was super into him before, like listening to him, like there's no denying he is because you hear even if you've never heard a Johnny Cash song in your life, you hear Johnny Cash and you're like, oh, yeah, I've heard of him. I know like right. what he's done, his and, legacy, because yeah. I think he's kind of like, you know, I remember when Kobe Bryant died, people were talking about, you know, he transcended the sport of mm-hmm. basketball. I think that like. Johnny Cash transcended the genre of country, and that's why yes. he was such like, a, a, a crossover success. And um but no, for me, it's like, you know, he's up there with, you know, when you think of the, the uh, like, the American all-time greats, you know, the Elvis Presleys, the mm-hmm. Eagles, um, you know, for, you know, shout out to my mom, Barbara Streisand, <laughs> you know, I think Johnny Cash is, is right up there. They've got a spot in uh, your American history books. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, um, so what did you think of American Recordings, that his 1994 album with Rick Rubin? So I had a question about that because um, I listened to the whole thing. Um, I understand it was just him in his living room. I think just recording. so it was him. So he there. So he were, there was three places that he recorded. The uh, one of the places was Rick Rubin's living room okay. in Los Angeles. Another was his living room in uh, Tennessee. Um, and then he did two songs live at the Viper Room. Yeah, that was Johnny Depp's um uh, infamous notorious club. That makes so much more sense because I was listening through and you'll hear like an audience in the background like laugh or cheer or something like that. I'm like. That doesn't sound like it was put in there in the studio. That sounds like a live version of what he's doing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I liked the album. Um, it was definitely different because, you know me, I'm just so... Um, when I'm writing a song and I'm recording something, I have 50 tracks because I just need to fill every, <laughs> every little bit of space that I can. And so this is the exact opposite of that. Yeah. That's just him, his guitar, and... 
and his voice. And it's mainly, I mean, it's mainly his voice because yeah. I was reading that he didn't even use a pick. That's insane to me. Yeah. That's in like, the thing is like, I took a second and I was kind of listening. I, you know more about the finger picking stuff than I do, but I'm like sitting there and I'm like, ooh, he's, he's being very deliberate about where he's doing the guitar versus where he's singing. And when he's singing, it's just, it's just voice. Like the guitar's there, but it, it's just him. That's so yeah, cool. And, and I think that he has that unique voice that he can get away with it because like it's not it, I mean it's not quite a cappella but like the guitar in the mix is is like much lower than the voice but mm-hmm. I do think that speaks to the power of his vocals. Um It's so heavy. It's oh it's And he gets low. Yeah. And um there's parts of it too like cuz um I think for this particular album I don't know why but I was like I was playing video games. I think I was playing Rocket League or something like that. And like while I was like listening to it, I'm like, these two don't go together. First of all, like I should not be playing a video game while, <laughs> while listening to this album. So it's like being at the gym and listening to this album. It's like, no, no, let's not do that. Exactly, but there was like parts of it where it's like, I this is more designed to sit there. And there's some heavy songs where it's like I don't listen to a lot of sad stuff. And there are a few songs on there where, it, oh my goodness, like I can feel his emotion. Oh, like, it gets it can get a like the man gnarly. who couldn't cry. I know. Yeah, well, that's 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 a dark comedy song. Dark comedy. So, so it's like that that song is interesting, and and um, you know, talking about in the monologue, as I mentioned, is that you can look deep into the song, but I kind of think that that's counterproductive because at the end of the day, the song is just kind of like a silly, tragic comedy. And I heard people you laughing, know? and I'm like, why are people laughing at this? But then, like, it makes sense that yeah. way. There was also, I want to say it was thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was written by Glenn Danzig. Okay, so that was a cover. Yeah, so mo- most of the songs in the album are covers. I knew a majority were. I didn't know if that one was or not. Um, but that one was cool with the, 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 like the tattoo on his neck turns red. I yeah. was like, oh, I understand this a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> oh, that's a little deep. Um, <laughs> and then the first song, I forget the name, uh, forgive me, because I know... Delia's Gone? Yes. Um, about a murder? Yes. So okay. Delia's Gone is, is really interesting. It's an old, um, it's kind of a traditional folk song, uh, this... Um, this woman, or I shouldn't say woman, because she was a teenager, was was murdered by a, uh, in ni- the year nineteen hundred in Savannah, Georgia, actually. Okay. Um, by this guy that I guess she was like romantically involved with, um, and for whatever reason, like a lot of blues artists started writing songs about it, and it's one mm. of those you know traditional folk songs that like you know just kind of changes over the years and whatnot. And Johnny Cash actually did a uh, did a, a version of it, I think, in the early sixties, but. I mean, uh, so many like well-known artists have done covers of it. Waylon right. Jennings did a cover. Bob Dylan did a cover. Um, so a, yeah, it, yeah, it talks about you know the yeah the, the murder of this girl. Her name was uh, Delia Green. Interesting, because I was listening to it and I just didn't know that context the first time I listened to it, and I'm still I I don't think I even heard the Bob Dylan cover before, but it was just I think that's like as I said, the first song off the album. I was like, oh, this is the way we're going now. This is crazy. Whoa! I gotta, I gotta. That, that's like a big part in like in in the country music tradition, murder ballads, and also um, if you look at like Australian folk music, it's a, that's like a parallel. Like murder ballads are like a really big part of like the lineage of both mm. folk music and country music in the United States. That's so interesting to me. Um, I guess going back to the album as a whole, or I guess those three songs are the ones that definitely popped out to me when I was listening through. Um, I have a newfound respect for it because I thought. After my first listen, I was like, I just can't really get into this. And then I think I listened to 13 again. That was a song where I was like, 
I get it now. <laughs> That's where I could sit here and maybe on a rainy day listen to this and understand really what Johnny Cash was going for. And yeah. if I'm not mistaken, this is like obviously this is the nineties, this is kind of past where he was at his biggest. I don't know if these songs were like ever were really that big in the nineties. No, no. Um and uh so American Recordings was kind of his comeback album in terms of like, you know, um, accolades from critics but it was not a, a like a big commercial success but what it did mm-hmm. is it started him on the trajectory that led him to having that big hit with Hurt gotcha. um, because it started his work with Rick Rubin that's so interesting but and um, I know there was like an argument or a falling out with his current oh sorry his previous was he with Columbia Records yeah Columbia something? fired yeah. him in 80 I think in 86 yeah so this is kind of like yeah. you said his comeback it's it once you learn kind of the context and listen to it again it's like, oh. Yeah, and, and, and I'm going to get to that um, in, in a second. But mm-hmm. um, my last question, and then I'll kind of give you an opinion. Sure. Uh, kind of touching on what you just mentioned. But why do you think Johnny Cash is the icon that he remains 20 years after his death? Mm. Um, I think we touched on it when we first started talking about the album, or Johnny Cash in general. But the fact that he, he can do so much with so little. Like, just his voice. I love that. So much with so little. It's very simple. It's very just, you don't need anything else. And that it's just, you just need Johnny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, he had, his original group was, you know, Johnny Cash in Tennessee, too. It was just, um, there was a guy on electric guitar that would play two or three notes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he had a, a, an upright bass player. And then he would, he would take his, he would put a piece of a paper in his guitar and strum it. And it would sound like a snare drum. And that was it. Wow. And, and then he would just sing on top of that. And he can get so low, and the lows feel low. You feel the emotion in yeah. his voice. You just feel, maybe he's not quite as sad. Maybe he was sad when he was recording this. I don't know, but you can you just feel like the emotion that he's trying to portray in the song. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and I think, and I was thinking about this, and I wanted to talk to you about this, is, you know, when I reflect on Johnny Cash, like, why does, you know, I know people that are huge country fans that love Johnny Cash. I know people that are metal fans that, like, have mm-hmm. a soft spot for Johnny Cash. And I think if you look at the trajectory of his career, I think he just kind of represents so much of humanity. You know, his mm-hmm. ups and downs, he was huge in the 50s and 60s. Then, you know, got into trouble, got addicted to drugs, yep. um, you know, was uh, unfaithful. Um, got divorced, um, but then you know he he made these you know this great album you know at Folsom Prison married June Carter and then like mm-hmm. things were doing better and uh, and then you know and the, he you know relapsed and and all of these things and then at the end of his career he ended with just singing these beautiful songs yeah um, so I just think that he just kind of represented so much of humanity because I think you know celebrities uh, uh, you know are held to a certain standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times, you know, they, they are human, but a lot of times they kind of get carried away with their fame and fortune. Um, and they kind of divorce themselves from like the emotions of the common man where I feel like Johnny Cash never divorced himself from that. He sang about it. He, he just went in and basically like it's naked. There's no, there's, there's no curtains in front of what he's trying to do. Right. But I agree with you completely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for, for letting me go down that range. Ah, no, I like it. It's uh, good. It's good. Yeah. And, uh, well, I, uh. I do, I, as you can tell, I, I was in Nashville recently, and I made it a point to go to the Johnny Cash Museum. He's one of my all-time favorites. But anyways, we're gonna we're gonna do another one eighty. Let's go. The, the theme of this uh, of of these couple episodes. But um, are you a fan of Incubus? Um, so it's funny. I had a buddy growing up that was a drummer that was really into them just because of just uh, 
intricacies of uh, the open choruses and just going into like kind of a breakbeat verse type thing. And I know we'll get into that a little bit, but it was always kind of in the background for me. It was like always on the radio, like and that was it being like drive, <laughs> but like. Um, I never really got into them, I would say. They were more just people around me like them. Yeah, no, I, I totally hear that. Um, and it's like that for me as well. Um, do you remember the first time that you mentioned Drive? Do you remember the first time you heard the song Drive? Yes, it was... I had moved back to Florida. Um, my bus driver, when I was a freshman in high school, was just a, a rock metalhead. And he listened to like the dad rock station of our town. And so I remember I was listening to it on the way home, like one of my first weeks of school when I had like no friends and I was a loser. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, this song is speaking to me. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that was like the first time that it, like, I actually just sat down and listened to it. <laughs> and did, did you know that Drive was written, recorded and released in the 90s? No. Um, maybe I no, I always thought it was like a 2000 song. And, and I should say release like on the album because as a single it was released uh, in the year 2000, but it was released on the album it was in the 90s. Yeah, and and I I still mentally thought it was like uh like a mid to early, maybe mid to early 2000s song, but I never thought of it as like something that was, you know, I guess 90s. No, I I was surprised too. Um uh, when I found that out because like to me I always associate Drive with the year 2001 I feel like that's when I first heard the song but like apparently no 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 not, it came, was released as a single in early 2000s and was released on the album in uh, 1999 so mm-hmm. I was I was surprised um, and that uh, leads into my next question is that like mm-hmm. so since basically all of the singles from uh, from the album Make Yourself which is um, the album at hand that we're talking about, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're in the 2000s. Um, would you consider Make Yourself a 90s album? I mean, it was technically released in 1999, but, you know. I don't know. I mean, like, this is part of it where I'm not quite as familiar um, with their history or, I guess, stories around the writing process slash uh, touring process. But I really, in my experience at least, listened to them a lot in the 2000s. So it's hard for me to picture them as a 90s band. Yeah, no, and the thing, but they have released um, a couple of pretty successful albums in the 90s. I think they had an album called Science that was released in 97, and mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, I don't think it had any, like, you know, pop crossover success, mm-hmm. but it definitely uh, started introducing themselves to the masses, um, whereas, like, you know, Make Yourself was their breakthrough album. Um, but, like, for me, like, you know, Incubus is definitely a 2000s band. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, like, it, it's funny because the, the, you know, three of their most popular songs drive pardon me and stellar are right. all on this band are all on this album make yourself that was released in 1999 right. so it's it's kind of interesting it's like that's it, the commercial know. success like i remember yeah. they like they were in movies or like the songs were in movies like right tv shows um actually you brought up stellar i don't, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves but am i able to like say something about that one of course stellar was really cool <laughs> There's, it's like a trippy melodic riff that it opens up with and i think that's kind of also the theme of the album like you have this kind of weird like intro riff slash weird um sound slash guitar thing that's kind of going and then it goes into like a verse and you hear like it open up into the chorus and i think like with the common theme of this album was every song like a minute and 30 in you kind of saw where they were going with it whereas in the beginning of every song i was like what's happening I'm not sure what's happening. <laughs> yeah, I oh, know. I definitely, I definitely can see that. Um, and uh, so, 
what genre would you consider make yourself? I was I was thinking a lot about this. I don't know, man. I thought about it a little bit too, and it's like do you have like these li- weird little like you can hear bits of like the late nineties in it where it's got almost got um like the what's the the DJ squealy sound? I forget yeah. what that's called. <laughs> yeah, well, I th- I think that that kind of lends itself to you know Incubus, they kind of get thrown into the new metal. Uh, yes, new sorry that's what i was going and, for yeah and it's interesting because you know i'm in my, my next random this is a i guess a uh a preview if you will but you know uh, down the, my next random episode uh um is going to be talking about the history well not history but just talking about butt rock, butt rock. In, in general right so i think butt rock people kind of can can um you know uh consider bands that are from new metal and post grunge um, but they're but, kind of but, better than that. But that's the thing. But I'd say just because you're part of those genres does not necessarily mean that you're bot rock. Because like I feel like bands like Linkin Park mm-hmm. and and an Incubus, even though you could probably slap the label of new metal on them, especially like because of songs like Pardon Me, Up for in- Incubus, and Wish You Were Here. Mm-hmm. But I think that like just because you're new metal doesn't mean you're bad. You know, because I think that like you know even Corn they had some unbelievable songs. Um, you know, if you do new metal right, as Lincoln Park did or as Incubus did, it's a yes. really it's a really great genre. But because of you know kind of how out there um, the genre is, you can really get into some dangerous territory with it. You know, sounding really bad. Absolutely, and like you, like you said, like you can put the butt rock label on it, but it's it's just not. It's not. It's um. There was a song on the album called I think it was the warmth. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Oh my gosh, you're listening to it, and like the rest of the album, I wouldn't say quite is is quite as positive as that song is. Like the, the song talks about being in a bad place, but then it's remembering, at least you're here. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought, I don't know, that was one song. I know I that's my theme today, where we're going. I'm listening to an album, and the, a song makes me kind of stop, and that's the song. So on that the, album. the warmth was that for you because that, that yes. was a great song. So what I did. Um, especially like you know this when I went in depth in each album, I kind of chose what I called quote unquote highlights. And what I did is mm-hmm. I went through and I listened through each album, um, and I chose the highlights. And that was one of the highlights for me off that album. I'm glad we're we're a parallel here. That's awesome. Um, other than so, you mentioned the warmth and you mentioned stellar. Um, what would you say are? Do you have any other favorite songs on the album? Um, no, I think everything else for me personally. Again. I liked the album, but there was a lot of songs that kind of meshed into a similar feel for me where I was like, I really appreciate this, but there wasn't another one that was like, to me at least, like, ah, I'm I'm feeling that one. I think it was the warmth and stellar for me, and then pardon me, that's that's such a good chorus. Have have you heard, oh, absolutely. (laughs) Have you heard the acoustic version of that song? I have not. It's actually the first time I heard pardon me, my friend Max, shout out. Um, in, uh, in, in, in eighth grade, um, showed me the acoustic version. I heard that before the electric and they're both awesome. Wow. Um, and my last question before we move on, um, where do you think Incubus ranks among like famous rock bands from the early two thousands? They're just so interesting to me because, um, I don't want to go out on a limb here and say a lot of people would agree with me on this, but going back to what I said earlier, they were just kind of always there for me. They weren't like a band that I was like. You name when you're t- like thinking of bands that you liked from that time period per se. I think I need to give them more of a listen, or more, the other albums that they've put out more of a listen before I start ranking them per se. But at the same time, off of Drive alone, I'm like they've got to be at least in the conversation. There, I mean, they're a really talented band. Like they wrote really good songs. Their singer was really good. The the, the choruses had energy. Mm-hmm. Um, they did some really interesting stuff. They did different genres. So they're I think they're a really good band. But they're a band that I still 
I mean, I only, other than Make Yourself, I only know like the big hits, like, you know, Wish You Were Here, Animali, all that stuff. Right. Um, so it, it's interesting, like in, in terms of like, when I think of the premier rock bands of the early 2000s, like if you just had me list them, obviously I talk about, you know, the bands that we've talked about quite a bit, Green Day and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the Chili Peppers, Book 182, but I would, I, I would mention Incubus. But I think the thing about Incubus is that like, I don't think they have a huge, like, fan like vocal yes. fan base yes you know, i definitely something. agree with that and but at the same time anyone that's like into that type of music you bring them up and no one i, I feel like ever has anything bad to say about them either absolutely that that and that's why i think like they're not cons- like i wouldn't consider them butt rock because yes. mm-hmm. you know and, and that you know when they were the biggest late 90s early 2000s was a hotbed for butt rock so you know uh your dad, obviously, you know, you've talked about, and we've talked about a lot over the years about, you know, your dad's a very prolific guitar player in, in very successful Grateful Dead cover band. Um, so m- before I ask you about Carlos Santana, is your dad a fan of Santana? It's funny, like, I don't know if we've ever actually talked about him. Like, my dad's brought up before that, like, oh, yeah, I know a couple Santana songs and he'll, he'll jam out on a little bit. But I don't know if my dad's ever actually explicitly said he's a fan. Like outside of just like covering songs, <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, I'm I'm curious to hear what he thinks of Santana. So you know, you obviously we talked about you going through this slash phase. Every guitar player has, and I think yeah. you were talking about earlier about like how recognizable of guitar player that slash is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that the other guitarist that is like super recognizable, like as soon as you hear them, you know it's them, is Carlos Santana. Um, and you know, in that vein, have you ever gone through a Santana phase? Not until after college. Um, I thought the first time I actually like listened to Santana, I think it was, uh, black magic woman. I'm not gonna lie. Like 15 year old me was like, eh, <laughs> it's, it's whatever. I was kind of bored by it. And then I don't think I really appreciated it until I came back and say like eight years later and was like, Oh, I totally understand like what the like this song was trying to get at now. And that I out of all the albums that we're doing today, like the listen throughs that I did, this one was my favorite. Really? Yeah. Really. 100%. You know, that was gonna be one of like the, the rap up. Ah questions. shit, my bad. <laughs> but it's okay. We'll skip that. We'll skip that question. It's okay. I've got other wrap up questions. Uh no, it's all good. Um no, it's it's uh you know, it, it's a classic album. Um and uh, you know where where do you think Carlos Santana ranks among the greatest guitar players in the history of popular music? Ooh, it's I find ranking guitarists so hard because so many guitarists go for so many different things. You've got like the nerdy prog guys that are just like well, well that's oh, why I say like in terms of like you know popular music. You know, think of like oh popular music. Yeah, yeah he's up there, easy. It, it's it, because his guitar playing is so relatable, like. It's so interesting going back and uh, obviously like the big one off this album was Smooth. Um, that was one of the songs growing up that I had memorized. And I always like, I would air guitar that in like the back of my mom's Toyota 4Runner because I thought <laughs> that was like the, the sickest guitar solo ever. And I listen to it now and I'm like, it's not really that hard what he's doing, but there's the emotion and like the feel that he plays with. It's like, he's he's up there, man. He's up there. Oh, Absolutely, and I think for me, uh, I think he's probably my favorite guitar player of all time. Dude, um, yes. And just something about like the way that you know he can include um, you know his blues playing with Latin rock is, is mm-hmm. I think pretty unbelievable. Um, 
And, uh, you know, are you familiar with any... Because, you know, the, the big thing about Santana is that he's had multiple errors in which he was really successful. Right. Um, are you familiar with any of his big hits from the late 60s and early 70s that kind of made him, you know, a, a classic rock icon? Um, there was Black Magic Woman, I know that. And then there was... Off of, off of Santana 3, there was a couple other songs that I can't remember the names off the top of my head, but I know I listened to the albums. And uh, th- that made them kind of big when... They, I think they opened up for, like... Was it The Grateful Dead? They opened up for... Um, it's po- it's possible, uh, especially because they were like really associated with like the hippie movement. Yeah, um, I'm actually like less familiar probably with their hits from the '70s than I am from I guess the '90s album. Yeah, so their their debut album is that I, to me that's my favorite. Uh, it's mm-hmm. just called Santana. Yeah, um, Abraxas I, I think is their either their second or third album, and that's the one that has Black Magic Woman and Oye Como Va. Yes, okay. um, and Samba Pati. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, his first album that has uh, Evil Ways, which is probably mm-hmm. I think his like biggest pop hit from um, you know his his early career, right? Um, but definitely would would definitely check out because to me those are like you know some of the all time great rock albums, his early stuff, first three four albums. I have to go back. Um, but we're here to talk about Supernatural, <laughs> not those first three albums. <laughs> like... um, what are your thoughts on Supernatural? I know you obviously love it. <laughs> From Dude, your, your oh, prior comments, but tell me about it. Um, so the way I thought about it when I was listening through, because obviously he has a lot of um guests slash uh, features on this album too. The way he's able to just plug himself into any other artist's feel is just amazing to me. And there's also a way he plays where the only way I can describe it is it's the way I wish I played when I didn't have a mic in front of me or I was getting recorded. He records his stuff as if it's the last song he's ever going to play. Like, that's how I would describe his playing, which is just so cool to me. I, he He's natural. It's all feel. A lot of it's offbeat. There's not really a whole lot of uh, structure, I would say, into a lot of his jammy stuff. But it's, it, this album I was just listening through, and there were so many, like, tangents he goes on away from the song where it's like, well, like uh, there was, what was the song with Clapton that he did? Um... Uh, give me one second. I'm 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 blanking on the name. Uh, the calling. The calling. Okay. Yeah. That one. It just took me through so many different genres in like three minutes, where I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is really cool." Um, sorry. I know I went on a rant there, but th- that's oh, just no. that's just how I felt when I was listening to the album. No, I totally hear. You. And and what it's what's interesting to me, um, about Supernatural, uh, is that you know I think that album is a time capsule. Mm-hmm. Um, because it really captures the music across across the pop spectrum mm-hmm. um, of like who is successful. Because you have like you know Rob Thomas, you have like Wyclef mm-hmm. Jean on there, you have Eric Clapton, right. um, you have uh, Everlast, who was a member. What was it House of Pain? They did mm-hmm. the like, jump that that hip hop song. Um, so I think that's what's like so interesting is that like here's this like Latin rock slash blues guitar player that is like doing all these like popular songs with these guys from different artists. I mean, it's so fascinating. Oh, absolutely. And there was, um, uh, was, I think it was Put Your Lights On. Yes. Yeah, that was with, with Everlast. Yeah. So it just out of nowhere just dropped some like heavy distortion, almost like, I don't want to say metal, but just like out of nowhere, there's just so like, I guess so many different genres and things happening in the album where I didn't know that. I had never listened to this album through the entire way before. Like I did, uh, we were doing this. And well, so. yeah, it's really interesting because did you, do you remember the song Corazon Espinado? Mm-mm. So, um, so that song is with this Mexican band Mana. Have you heard of Mana before? Sounds that actually sounds so familiar, Mana. Yeah. They're pro- they're like, 
uh, they're like the Beatles of Mexico. Yeah. You know, they're just like a really, really, really popular rock band. That might be, I don't know if that's like a great comparison, but just like, I'm just trying to sure. uh, imply, you know, how there's their success in Mexico. And that song, like, so the, the two biz- biggest songs in the United States were, you know, Maria Maria um, mm-hmm. and Smooth. Um, but in Mexico, I think Corazon Espinado, like to this day, is like a huge, huge, huge hit you hear on like, you know, Latin, you know, radio. Um, and I, you know, his ability and one of the things that I love about Santana, and I actually talk about this cause I do, you know, I'm a, as a high school Spanish teacher, like I, I gave, I do give, I, I give a presentation about Santana. Yeah. And I always mention, um, when he got inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame in 1997 before this album, um, I don't remember the name of the singer of the blues travelers, but the singer of the blues traveler, uh, of the blues travelers, uh, inducted Santana into the hall of fame. And what he said was that the ability of Carlos Santana fusing blues rock with you know latin percussion and you know mm-hmm. going back and forth between english and spanish he made his music accessible from canada all the way down to chile right and like when he said that i'm just like oh my that is amazing like what he w- was able to do in his career to like you know connect like you know bridge that that cultural gap is just like mind-blowing to me absolutely you see bands and artists do that now but i don't know if before santana that was actually something that actually happened i don't know i, I don't know i don't know um lead song off the album uh dale dale daleo uh, daleo i can I, i'm sorry i'm so white daleo. i'm so white <laughs> but that one too where it's like you just said it, it transfuses the latin feel there's just a catchy chorus too that even if you don't speak that language, you're sitting there humming along to it. And like, I think to your point, that's what made it so great is that you could just, no matter where you're from or how you were brought up, you can all just enjoy that song. And that's what Santana is all about, man. That's a great opener. I totally, I totally agree. Um, And my last question is that like, you know, why do you think an artist, of the age of Santana when the album was released connected so well with like a young pop audience, you know, I mean, he was 30 years removed from his debut album, you know, that's such a good question. Um, I think it had a part to do with the features that that just the amount of people they brought on the album to do stuff with him. And then partly maybe just because at the time it was more accessible. Maybe people, um, I know before I don't, I think nineties give radio. I'm sure that stuff was on the radio and stuff like that. But I think just it being more accessible to people too, um, kind of going to your first point too about being transcending across different places in the world and just bringing people together. That's why it was so popular. Love that. Um, so we're going to wrap it up. And, you know, you already said that your favorite of the six albums that we've talked about, um, you know, over the course of these two episodes, um, you said that your favorite was um, Supernatural. Mm-hmm. Um, but now let's go to songs. So of these six albums, which which one of the songs would you say um, you would rank as your favorite? Across all of these albums, uh, it's so cheesy. Uh, Civil War by Guns N' Roses. Like, okay. That one just, I don't know why, but I hadn't listened to it in a long time. And then I guess it goes back to you know early in our conversation, but just the fact that you can make a song that long you can make it a ballad and just kind of also put a, like a, a positivist for guns and roses, at least message in there. <laughs> um, it was a really, it was a pleasure to listen to. And it reminds you that there's other stuff outside of uh, every artist's top three songs that you can go down the rabbit hole and really enjoy. Yeah. And what I love about that song is that you kind of have a dichotomy in that song between like that, that, that battle, that acoustic ballad where like Axel singing in his, like his lower register, mm-hmm. um, 
and then all of a sudden it's like become becomes like this intense metal song where yes. like Axel's singing is his highest register and it really demonstrates Al- Axel's prowess as a singer. Oh yeah. And that's I think you described right there honestly a better answer as to why they transcended the nineties. Like because I feel like eighties you had that high register up tempo type songs, but Civil War kind of brought you into the nineties that way. Yeah. Well yeah, it's like kinda you know, has like Metallica vibe. Exactly. Um and uh so civil war love that um mm-hmm. are there any other songs that like i know you mentioned daddy's little pumpkin yes i was about to say it was between those two essentially yeah. daddy's little pumpkin for me like really grounded me and made me appreciate that type of music because as we d- described earlier i uh i've never been super into singer songwriter type music but i found myself thoroughly enjoying that album especially that song when i was yeah, listening and to I, it. I really think that like you know Obviously, you and I disagree about EDM, but with the exception of <laughs> even with EDM, I think like a really good artist, it doesn't matter the genre if they're good at what they do, you, you're you're gonna enjoy it. You know, a common theme of all these albums is that I think the lyricism and the story being told is what matters. And so, yeah. I guess tying it into that too, even in EDM, you got some good storytellers. <laughs> you got some good storytellers. <laughs> <laughs> EDM Story Hour by Ryan Gilman. <laughs> I'm going to start my own podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the last question that I have for you is, uh, are there any 90s albums by artists not considered 90s artists that you think that I left out? This ravaged me. I couldn't. I I was trying for so long. Uh, like, there was some Metallica one. What was it? Uh, I'm, I'm ruining the podcast. I just don't think of Metallica sometimes as 90s. It's weird to say. Well, I think they're one of those artists that, like, you can make an argument, like, they are, like, half 80s, half 90s, right? Because they yeah. have, like, you know, um, Master of Puppets. and mm-hmm. um, That's what I think of when Justice I think of Metallica. All, yeah. And so, like, but there was, obviously, I think the Black Album was the 90s. And, and like, there's just, with them, I, I got into the Metallica actually kind of later on. Like, I think there was a Guitar Hero Metallica where... I was actually into like their newer 2000s stuff, and I just didn't even realize they had stuff from the 90s. But that maybe is showing my age a little bit too. But you did a good job. I couldn't think of uh, any other albums at the top, not off the top of my head. Even going down like the internet rabbit hole and trying to find other stuff, I think you did a good job picking these. Yeah, albums the up. one album that I initially had on and uh, I took off um, because actually when I listened through it, I didn't really enjoy it. Um, was this, uh, I think she released a nine. Have you heard of Bonnie Raitt before? Mm-mm. She does. Um, I can't make you love me. Still drawn a blank. You, you've definitely. I've heard, heard the it. song yeah, probably. Well, well I'll, I'll show it to you after. So she, yeah, she, um, her, most of her hits, I think were in the seventies and she, you know, she's incredible, but, um, she has two really big hit singles from this 1991 album. Um, let's give them something to talk about. Or mm-hmm. I think the name of the song is just something to talk about as well as I can't make you love me. And I was like thinking, okay, well this album is definitely have to be, those are two great songs. And I listened to the album. I was like, man, like this. Uh, I'm not, like, not going to put Ryan yeah. through that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I put you through enough with having to listen to Johnny Cash and John Prine. So. I appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate it. It was um, good. But anyways, yeah, man. Thank you so much. I know it was a, it was a tough ask uh, to get you to listen to six different albums, <laughs> but, um, you know, I appreciate your time, not only coming here and, and, and talking with me, but just also the research that you had to do and the time you had to spend listening to it. Um, so I really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, uh, best of luck with, uh, with your rocket league progress. I appreciate it. Next time I'll, I'll, I'll have you come on a, a podcast. I just invent the next couple of weeks. And I'll, <laughs> the, I'll bring you on and talk about Kygo and Martin Garrix. <laughs> <laughs>
assume that's basketball or am I way off? Oh, you're, that's ADM artists. Oh, God. <laughs> well, that ends my podcast. All right, man. All right, Ryan. Thank you so much, dude. Appreciate you all as right. well, man. Take care. See you. Thank you all for listening and a special thanks to my good friend Ryan Gilman for being a stellar guest once again. Have a great rest of your day and whatever it brings, hopefully music is involved. Again, I'm Dove Brenner and this is Hot Cakes from a 90 Stand. Take care.